So Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that's the farthest north to the farthest south of Israel, knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. These few verses, and even the first verse of chapter 4, where it says the word of Samuel came to all Israel, these few verses are a summary of his life from childhood into adulthood, and the dramatic change that happened for the entire nation of Israel about this time when God gave them a prophet. There were a couple of voices of the Lord in the 400-year period of the book of Judges, but no one like Samuel. He grew up under the priesthood with a priestly robe. He was called to be a prophet, but he also, we'll find next week, verse by verse on Tuesday night, he also was a judge. He's the last judge. And many accredit part of the narrative of the book of Samuel to Samuel and his accumulating the historical record of his time in this book of the Old Testament. So he's a very unique man, and he's transitory. We're transitioning from the judges to the kings, and all of Israel's history is going to be completely different. The nation, the people of God under covenant, is going to be completely different. We've had these different seasons from 2000 BC, a thousand years before, 900 years before when God called Abraham, then Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons. Then they all go to Egypt for 400 years. They come out from the slavery. They're at Mount Sinai. Moses is their leader. Moses brings them to the promised land. Then Joshua brings them into the promised land. And then the time period of the judges, where we had like maybe a good judge. Well, they're all pretty much good judges. Even Samson's mistakes was still a good judge in that sense. And now this. He's a unique person. And we know that he was birthed. His life came to existence when his mom wrestled with great travail before the Lord to receive him as a son, totally dedicated to the Lord. He is completely dedicated to the Lord. So as we look at this passage, there's a phrase that really gets our attention that we want to think about for all of our lives if we've given our life to Christ and as we would give our life to Christ. It says that all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel had been established as a prophet of the Lord. Ultimately, when we give our life to Christ, we're told that we pass from death to life, right? If any man or woman be in Christ or a new creation, behold, all things have passed away, all things are new. When we follow Jesus, Jesus called men and women to himself, and he said, follow me. And they left what was their life, and they followed Christ. So like Peter and Andrew, John and James, Matthew, the tax collector, when he left the tax collecting booth, he was Levi to Matthew, they, they were all in. There's dramatic change where their life was one thing and then it becomes another when they give their life to Christ. Then in the book of Acts, we see this as well, where 3,000 people get saved. Their life was like this before the day of Pentecost. Their life's like that after the day of Pentecost. The apostles were completely different people than they were when Christ called them. They lead the church. We see God bringing, drawing people to himself throughout the book of Acts, the first generation of the church. We see someone like Saul of Tarsus is this way, and then he has an encounter with the Lord, and now he's Paul the apostle, and now he's that way. She's a completely different person. And we, build, we can build a life outside of Christ or our life before Christ a certain way. But really, once we give our life to Christ, there is that calling that God has on our life that our life is no longer our own. And we're, we're called into that upper call of God in Christ Jesus. And so we have a whole new life. 
And we might have been established in life this way before Christ. But when we come to Christ, we're established in the call of God, the upper call of God in Christ. And our life is no longer being built on sand, if you will, but a firm foundation. Jesus there in the Sermon on the Mount, when we studied this back last summer, that last study was that the foolish man builds his house or the foolish woman builds her house on the sand. And that's the person who hears the word of God and does not obey it. But the wise woman, the wise man, they build their house on the rock. And that's the person that hears God's word and obeys it. They are established. So in our English language, when we say that we're going to be established, the world uses that term. For example, I don't know if Billabong, the surfwear company, still does this, but it used to say established in 1973. That was one of their monikers, established in 1973. You'll occasionally see like a plumbing truck in Huntington Beach or an electrician truck, and it'll say established 1997. It gives the idea that you've been around and you survived a couple of recessions or whatever else has gone on in human history while you've been in business. Because, for example, Toys R Us is gone, and companies like that, right? The idea of being established is something solid, like when it began. And that is firm, and it's solid, it's established. We've established this. In a court of law, a lawyer might say, we've established that this person was at the scene of the crime under such and such circumstances. We have eyewitness testimony. You're establishing something. And here in the concept of the word as we understand it, we're told that this man, Samuel, is established by God in such a way that it's so profound that from the farthest north, Dan to Beersheba, in the territories of Israel, everyone knows when his name comes up, it's like, oh, man, the Lord's with that guy. Now, remember when we ended the book of Judges, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. But now, God is on the move in this generation. We talked about this Tuesday night. God can choose to move when he wants to move, however he wants to move in any generation. And it would seem in some generations, in some locations, he'll do certain things much more in one generation than the next one. And who can know why or anything about it? There's mysteries to what God chooses to do or doesn't choose to do. But whatever we, is going on in our generation, we choose whether or not we're going to let him work in our life in a bright time or a dark time morally and culturally. In other words, we decide if we're going to let God really establish his will, his purposes, his calling on our life. That's not only evident to ourselves when we look in the mirror and the people that know us closely, but it becomes evident to the people around us. When we give our life to Christ, we are establishing a new purpose in life. And that life should reflect change. It should, it should reflect a change of worldviews from being self-centered to Christ-centered. It, it should be a transformation. And that's why God does give some people name changes when they've responded in faith to his call, both in the Old Testament foreshadowing of Christ and in the New Testament in Christ. For example, Simon became Peter, and again, Saul became Paul. What was to what is. And so, because early on in this chapter, we were told that Samuel was called by the Lord, and we talked about that on Tuesday night as well, the calling of God. But in his case, it's really neat because it's a kid, a younger kid being called. And we've seen young kids give their life to the Lord. We've seen kids on fire for the Lord, like in second, third, fourth grade. And you can see that that happens. And it's really special that that does happen. But because the contextually, this, the story of Samuel is such a, the call was when he's a child, I think it's better to focus on this text that really by the time he became a man, or ladies, you become a woman, and you're a woman, you've come of age. 
that when he came of age, he was established, clearly established by the Lord. And when his name was even mentioned, no matter where you went in the territory, there was an association of his name that he was established with God. This is what we want in our personal lives right now in Jesus' name. We want the people that live with us, live next to us, work with us, spend holidays with us, that go to church with us, that when they're talking to us for 10 minutes at a bus stop or on a plane or any situation, that they could sense the power of the Lord upon our life and that he has established his calling upon our life through Jesus Christ. That it is evident that this is a woman that's been with Jesus. This is a man that's been with Jesus. They reflect Jesus. We're established in the Lord. It's no longer what was, but it is what is. And so he's established, Samuel's established as a prophet of the Lord, but he's established by God in his identity and who he is to God's people of covenant in his timeline and in his life and in his generation. And so a couple thoughts about this tonight when we break this down and think about it. In Christ, we say this quite often, there's greatness for all of us in the Lord. Sometimes when you read these Old Testament books and we read the historical record about how great David was or Samuel and these people, we think like that's a greatness that maybe, or Esther going before the king and Deborah, man, just coming after Ruth and Naomi, right? Like Ruth is amazing. You, just, you see this greatness, like it just seems to so stand out like these are superheroes. But the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we say this, the blood of Christ on the cross, the empty tomb and the tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost it establishes anyone who comes to Christ to be great for the kingdom of God because the greatness is in really being yielded to Christ and letting him do the work that he wants to do in our life through our faith in him, who he is, what he's done, what he's going to do, where he's at, the right hand of the Father, and what he does by the Spirit, that he establishes us to be disciples, to be fruitful, and to be salt and light, to be established. As we just go about our journey and we go through different seasons and ebbs and flows, but we're established that we belong to Christ. Like Paul would say, I know who I believed in and I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. That we're established, like our faith is strong. Like we know who we believe in. We've committed our lives to Christ. We have the great confession of Christ and we're not gonna deny our confession for Christ and we're gonna hold fast to Christ. We are established and we're growing in our walks with him, which obviously most of you are, in one way or another, we're, we're trying to go forward. But we're, we're being built up, as the Bible says, to be built up in the most holy faith. We're being built up, and we're getting stronger. And we're becoming who we're meant to be in this journey of life. And we know some people have much less time than other people. And some people have a lot of time, like Billy Graham. But either way, we're all on the clock with limited time. And regardless of what preceded this day, when we look at this text tonight, we want to measure it by this day and going forward from this day. That bigger picture of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, what is God doing in our life? So what happened for Samuel was contextual for him, but that idea of being established and known to others is obtainable for us. So if you think about being established wherever we're at in life, because, see, I have been mentioning this, but I write down goals. I have goals, and I look at my goals pretty much every day, and they're expanding, and they have different categories on my phone, in my notes on my phone. 
And I look at those goals in the morning before I, after my morning devotion, I look at those goals to remind myself, what am I living for? What's my purpose? You know, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And how am I going to do it? What am I doing? What am I doing with this day? Life is the greatest gift there is. What am I doing with this day? Why am I doing this on this day? And how am I doing it? These are critical questions to ask ourselves that most people don't ask themselves on a daily basis. They just stumble through life and they stumble through eternity. But we should be asking ourselves, what am I doing with my life and this day? Why am I doing this? And how am I going to do this? And if you can't put Christ and the glory of the kingdom over it, then you better blow up those goals and set up a whole new set of goals for your life. Because whatever it is, as it works down into your world from your personal health and your personal hygiene and to your family relations and your marriage and your kids and your grandkids and paying your bills on time and living within your means and how, what your role is in the local church and the universal church. If it's not Christ over all that, then what is it? Because as you study people that have done great things from a human perspective and maybe even left behind tons of money from a human perspective, like the Rockefellers and Carnegie and Vanderbilt and these types of people, they can't take it with them. They might be wonderful philanthropists and their money still might be going on with various uh, foundations 100 years later. And you might be like UNICEF and you're digging wells in Africa. But if you are not digging wells in Jesus' name, then where's the living water? Where's the glory to Christ? Because Jesus said if you give a child a cup of cold water in his name, there's a reward in that. You can dig all the wells you want in third world countries, but if you're not doing it in Jesus' name, if you're doing it in the name of humanitarianism and a new world order, then, you know, that benefits the village, good for you, but it doesn't transcend. It's not transdimensional. And what we do in Jesus' name by the blood, empty tomb, and the tongues of fire is transdimensional. It has power and value on earth and has eternal rewards and fruit in heaven. So when you ask yourself, what why and how you want to put the blood, the empty tomb, and tongues of fire over that. Because if what you're doing comes from that, then what you're doing has meaning and purpose, and whether it seems mundane or not, but like whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. It, it has that. But if you're just doing it to exist, and it's just you or me manufacture what we manufacture, then, then what will our life be? There's a funny commercial going on with the World Surf League this week watching the contest at Sunset Beach online. But there's a commercial for Expedia. It says, whoever gets to their deathbed and says, I should have bought more stuff. And then he steps into like this beach scene somewhere in the world, somewhere on the planet. And he goes, you'll, you'll only regret the places you didn't go to. Uh, that's, 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 it's, that's a good commercial. That is a good commercial. In other words, say, get out there and live your life. That's what they're saying, Expedia, with travel and all that. We don't want to be on our deathbed and regret that we didn't have the blood, the empty tomb, which is the gospel, and tongues of fire, which is the power given to us, not have that over our life and the purpose of our life and the micro and the macro goals of our life. Being in my early 60s, I've been thinking a lot about so near the end. I, I, I'm telling young people, and I told Ali before service, you're 60 like that? You people that are 60 know what I'm saying? Can I get a witness? How fast did 60 hit you? You're like, oh, that's a slow-moving freight train. No, it's not. You just got hit by a bullet train. It got here quick. 60 comes up quick. And by the time you're 60, you're not young enough to be thinking about how your plans and all these plans that you have and how you're going to 
do this and that, and how are you going to plan for the future and plan a family? Like, no, you're figuring out how are you going to put things in order in a better way before you leave eternity for the people you're leaving behind. That's what you're thinking about. That's what you're thinking about at 60. You're thinking about what kind of a legacy am I leaving my kids, my grandkids, and planet Earth? Because that's we're already there. I don't have plans to like see now, right now in my life, I'm seeing things for when I'm gone. Just like Pastor Chuck did before he stepped into eternity. I'm seeing things for when I'm gone. I've been established for 35 years with Jesus. But I do not have, well, I could, but I'd have to really get the bonus time to get 35 years in my future. And those 35 years physically limit me compared to what the previous 35 have been. So, when we think of being established by the Lord and establishing those things he has for us, from Dan to Beersheba that people will know today, tomorrow, and in our journey, at our memorial service, on the slideshow, at our memorial service, we had one just a month ago in here, I can picture the slideshow, we need the Lord to establish us, and he establishes us when we're fully all in to his kingdom, his calling, and being a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's the woman that's established. That's the man who's established. And the establishment, when he establishes us, we see with uh, Samuel, it says that the Lord was with him, or, or we could say the Lord was with her for women here tonight. The idea that the Lord is with us is so crucial because you face things that are, are, are very scary and terrifying at times in life, very uncertain, very unsettling. Sunday night, I had a very unsettling night. I had major, major decisions to make, not just for me, but for my family, managing my dad's estate, and it was going to be a difficult day. And I was up at midnight praying for wisdom about decisions I had to make, big decisions, big money decisions, and decisions that change the way things have been for over 30 years. But things are not like they were 30 years ago economically, are they? Everything's a risk, WG, and doing nothing is probably the greatest risk you have with your personal life, let alone your personal wealth. And I was laying there, and I cast my cares before the Lord. And I'm like, Lord, i got to make this phone call tomorrow. It's going to be so hard. It's the end of the way things. My parents did things for 30 years, and I've got to make this change for my dad and this stuff. And, and, and Lord, just please confirm it for me. And he did. And then I had to decide Am I going to sleep in peace? Am I going to flip-flop all night? You know what I'm talking about? You do know what I'm talking about, right? Am I going to sleep in peace? Because this phone call could really go different directions. It's going to be hard. And the Lord made it hard because he said, I'm going to just get half of this back and leave that there like it was set up back in the day. And then the Lord convinced me, no, you're not getting half of it back. You're getting it all back. And you're going to do this with it when you get it. So it's the ending of a relationship that my parents had for decades with people who managed their finances. It's very hard. And I know these people. I've been, I've been with these people. But that's the way it was. And it's 2022. And that's not the way it is. And, you know, I gave that to the Lord. I said, you know, I might pass in my sleep tonight. So I'll just get up tomorrow morning. I'll my morning devotion. I'll make that phone call and we'll let it go. We'll do what we need to do. The Lord is with us. He's with you for the scary phone call. 
He is with you for the appointment tomorrow that is pretty, you know, unknown and out of your wheelhouse that you have no control over. He's with you for that call to boss's office later in the day and you've seen people already laid off. He's with you with all those things. The Lord is with us. Jesus on the Great Commission is one of my favorite passages there in Matthew 20. He said, Lo, I'm with you always till the end of the age. He, in the beginning of that passage of Matthew 20, he says, Go, therefore, make disciples. And then he says, Lo, I'm with you. So if you're going, he's with you. And if you're lowing, he's with you. If you're staying, he's with you. If you're going, he's with you. Then later on in Hebrews, he affirms in chapter 13 that he'll never leave us nor forsake us, which is the verse that God spoke to Joshua in the book of Joshua, but then the Holy Spirit puts it in the New Testament and says it's the same for the New Testament believer. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So whatever you face when a doctor looks at you and says this, or a family member does this act against you, or co-workers do that against you and treat you this way or lie about you, you just... You know, my mom's been gone for two years, and I'm telling you, the last two years she was alive, she would say stuff to me like, Joe, Joe, like she just, my sister, when I use my, my, when I say my mom, my mom, my mom and dad always called me Joe. No, I never, my family never called me Joey. I wasn't called Joey until I was a, a top surfer, and the magazines called me Joey, so everyone did, but my, my family still calls me Joe. Joe, you know what you got to do, and you just got to do it. My mom was like that, you know, that Irish Catholic Midwest background. Growing up in the Depression, you got to do what you got to do. It's like I can hear her saying, you just got to do it. You got to do what you got to do. And the Lord, and you should say, the Lord will be with you. And I had to do some really difficult things five years ago. And mom's like, Joe, you got to do it. The Lord will be with you. You got to do what you got to do. And he will be with you. That's what the Lord says to all of us. Those difficult things that we face. Those beautiful things. You think of a wedding day. A wedding day is the most beautiful thing, but it can also be the most stressful thing, right? Wedding days are like, it's not that you're in the ministry and you do wedding days, you realize how stressful they are. You got to manage the grandparents, the intensity, the volatility of the families and all this stuff. Is everyone on board? Usually someone's not on board and they want to make sure everyone knows they're not on board, but you got to invite them to the wedding anyways. And it's like, Oh, you just gotta, you, you gotta, you gotta do it. You gotta walk out there at the pastor and stand right here. Hmm. You know, walk down that aisle and go right there. The Lord is with us. Whatever we're gonna face in our future, the Lord is with us. And even if we feel like, in some cases, if anyone ever hears this message, it's not walking with the Lord or didn't even know the Lord. The moment we repent, which is a 180 turnaround, instead of self-government to yielding to Christ with faith, repentance from sins, and trusting him, he's right there. It really is like the thief on the cross. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today I'll be with you in paradise. My wife was just sharing this with me this week, that like, he got an upgrade. He's like, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, oh, today you will be with me in paradise. You're not just on the travel team. You're in the starting lineup. Grace always gives us an upgrade. Christ always gives us an upgrade. The gospel is an upgrade to everything in our life. And the Lord is with us. 
new, new chapters, new moves, new beginnings. Difficult legal things with family and the parents and the adult siblings and just, ah. But the Lord is with us. He'll always be with you. See, the Lord sees everything anyways, but the best thing to do is walk in the room with Jesus' authority and power upon your life in humility with the mind of Christ. That's the best thing. The, the Lord is with us. Just good to be reminded for the follower of Jesus Christ, he will never leave us or forsake us. Whatever we face, we never face it alone. The Lord is with us, body of Christ, worship generation. As he was with him, even more so through being born of the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ, he's always with us. And his Spirit affirms to us his presence, his promises, and he gives us peace that surpasses understanding, which means it defies our intellect. We've been perplexed and despaired, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, but we have peace, and we let it rule in our heart. We're somehow, you know, they say courage is the absence of fear. It's just the faith to face it. And Jesus says, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you. And we're not going to get to 80 or 90 in this journey and not have our world rocked. And Christ is our peace in the eye of the storm. He is with us. So whatever we might be facing currently in our future, emotional, physical, health, financial, just the human experience, it's good to be reminded, as he was with Samuel, how much more so, because everything in the Old Testament is a shadow of things to come, but the fullness for every believer is Christ. He is with us equally in the church with every believer on this planet. It's not like Hinduism where there's a case system where there's three tiers and you're children of a lesser God down here. We are adopted in his family, Romans 8, and we call him Abba Father. We all have equal access to the throne room at all times. He is with us. And like the thing says, the footprints, when we only saw two sets, one set of footprints, the Lord was carrying us. And sometimes we feel like, how am I even getting through this? He's not only with you, he's carrying you. He's never going to leave us nor forsake us. As he was with Samuel, even more so, every follower of Jesus Christ in our journey. We also read that... um, it says in verse 19, so the Lord was with him, that none of his words uh, fell to the ground. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? So he is a prophet, so he's speaking prophetically for the Lord, so he's just speaking the oracles of God, and none of them fell to the ground. It has the idea like none of them failed, like none of them were incomplete or not proven. It says in Deuteronomy, Moses said that you'll know a prophet because you can test whatever they say, and if thing comes to pass, they spoke for the Lord. If it doesn't, then they didn't. In the New Testament, when we speak of prophecy or a prophet, it's more the idea that God's word is going forth to what? To edify and to comfort and to reprove. That's what prophetic word does in the New Testament. We're told that in Corinthians. When we think about not one of his words fell to the ground, let us think about our words now. If the Lord is with us, and really since we're all salt and light, we're all ambassadors of Christ, citizens of heaven, if we give our life to Christ then we have to consider this reality that if Samuel's words didn't fall to the ground, why would we want our words to fall to the ground? Jesus says that of the abundance of a heart does a man or a woman speak. So we know that a heart reveals our words. That's why words are so important. 
They'll reveal our, our, our heart. So if you, if you see something kind of coming out of you that's like black water coming out of your heart, that's revealing your heart. That just didn't happen. That's what's in you. So when you're quick to criticize or attack or slander or be malicious towards someone or something, that's, that's in you. It's one thing to call a Pharisee a Pharisee like Jesus did. It's quite another to throw him under the bus. You follow me? We're to discern all things, but it's not our place to condemn anything. Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. And our words reveal our heart, which reveal our thoughts. And of course, the Bible is just filled with all the passages about what our words, you know, even a fool's kind of wise when they hold their peace. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. We're told to speak those things that are for edification, the building up of the hearers. Samuel's words did not fall to the ground. I do not want my words to fall to the ground. And I have to be honest, because I, of course, edit all my studies. And I've gotten better. I don't have to edit as much. But there's still things like, oh, that was personal. I've had to cut up Bible studies for four or five years now in the editing room. And it's just like, I feel like I'm, that's 10 minutes of, of study. Like, the, those don't happen too much anymore. Maybe it's like an um or an ah or this. But like content edit. It's like, oh, then I just, the 50-minute study should have been a 42-minute study because this edited eight minutes. Like, those words fell to the ground. Like, when you had that phone call and the things you said, it felt good. like, oh, that was good. And then they said that, like, huh, I shouldn't have said that. Right, those words fell to the ground. That's the idea here. So this is a reminder to us that we speak words of the kingdom. Words that glorify Christ. Words that direct people to Christ. Words that draw people to Christ. Words that reflect a faith in Jesus Christ, his promises, who he is, where he's at, and his coming kingdom. That's what our words should reflect. See, when Samuel, as a prophet, and we see in chapter 7, he went on a circuit as a judge. Wherever he went to all these villages, when he spoke, people listened to what he had to say. Because he was speaking God's word, his oracle, and he had the knowledge and the understanding and the wisdom that Solomon talks about in Proverbs. Knowledge is a fact. Understanding what it means and wisdom is how you apply the facts and understanding to the situation. Wisdom is decision. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And our words should reflect that. They should. I received something from someone recently about 10 commandments of human relations that got my attention. And then on the backside, I had the, the optimist creed, which is interesting. Yeah, I just take this up with a grain of salt because Christ is over everything. But our words do shape our world. Our worldview is shaped by the word of God in our mind and in our heart. And then we speak that worldview. And we can't speak reality in the sense of like God is reality and God's going to do what he's going to do. But, you know, we've said this. The Bible is very clear. As we sow, we reap. So if we're sowing fear and fear and terror in our minds and our hearts, we're going to walk outside and we're going to look like people that are terrified of living life right now and living in fear of nothing or whatever. But if we sow faith based upon God's word, not faith because like, oh, have faith in faith. No, we have faith in Jesus Christ, the blood, the empty tomb, and the tongues of fire. That's total victory. And that's sufficient for the human experience decreed by God for the disciples of Jesus Christ and his church. So I'm not some person and we're not some people who 
are trying to manufacture or create something that's not real. We are coming from reality. Jesus is reality. His word is reality. His promises are yes and amen. That's reality, WG, body of Christ. And if we truly believe his word, all of it, the whole counsel of God, then we are free to live life at the highest level. And we should be seeing everything through the prism and the perspective of faith and optimism. Not a faulty optimism like every day, better and better. Okay, well, if you're not in Christ, it's not better and better. You're headed for like uh, a slippery slope, like Jonathan Edwards said in the famous message, Sinners in the Hands of Every God. You're one step from eternity. It's not getting better and better. You're getting farther from glory and you're headed toward judgment. But in Christ, though the outward woman's perishing, the inward woman's being renewed daily. And now we see dimly in a mirror, but we are being transformed from glory to glory. So we are getting better and better, not because we're trying to manufacture something or speak something that doesn't exist, but we are affirming what is already established by Jesus Christ, by the blood, the empty tomb, and the tongues of fire. So coming back to this, uh, speak to people and speak encouraging and cheerful words. Smile at people. It takes 72 muscles to frown, 14 to smile. Call people by their name. God calls people by their name. Sometimes he gives them the double. Samuel, Samuel. Moses, Moses. Call people by their name. Respect them for who they are. They're created in the image of God, like the value of all life. Be friendly and helpful. Speak and act as if everything you do is, is a joy. Even if it isn't, learn to frame it so it is. That's what the Bible says, too. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Be genuinely interested in people. Be generous with praise and cautious with criticism. Some people just feel like they're the judge and jury of everybody and everything on planet Earth. Some people, you just know, are going to always say something negative, and you can almost play a game with them. Say positive things and watch them say negative things. I've got a few friends like that. I would not normally travel in a posse like that, but because I'm a pastor, people like that show up at church. And so I'll be like, dude, you just did it. I just did something beautiful. Like, I say Florida and dolphins, you say Florida and sharks. You know? I say California and sunsets, and you say California earthquakes. Right? Like, you know, like some people just like that. <laughs> be generous with praise, cautious with criticism. Be considerate with the feelings of others. Be alert to serve. Speak about the good things that God is doing and the blessings he wants to do in people's lives through his son, Jesus Christ. Make your friends feel that there is something special in them because there is. The dignity of all humanity is the beauty of the blood of Christ and the empty tomb and the tongues of fire. Christ died for all. God's love the world. Look at the bright side of things. Shape it that way, which we talk about all the time. Think the best, work for the best, and expect the best, and hope for the best. Why? Because it says in Corinthians that love bears all things, believes all things, and what? Hopes all things, and love never fails. Our words, they don't create an alternative universe, but they do reflect how we're seeing it, and we'll be much the better for it. I'd rather be smiling. I'd rather go down smiling and go down frowning. In Jesus' name. That's, that's, that's how I want to be and that's how you want to be.
to seek to wear a cheerful countenance. I like this one. To give so much time for the improvement of yourself, you have no time to criticize others. You know, they say, like, when you point a finger, you got four, yeah, pointing back at you. Like, just stay in our lane, seek the Lord, let him work in our life, and speak life and build up other people. Not one word fail. And when you are focused on Christ and his promises, you are believing Christ and his promises, you are living Christ and his promises, you are believing Christ and his promises, you are that person that walks in the room and you tilt the room for the glory of Jesus Christ. I mentioned Brian McDaniel the other night, and Brian McDaniel is just one of those people, I just love to be around Brian McDaniel, who does all this ministry in Haiti, which is pretty much the poorest, darkest country on planet Earth. And Brian's like, hey, you'll never believe what happened. And he's always got some story about meeting the prime minister before the prime minister was assassinated or meeting this Jewish guy and sharing the gospel before he died in the parking lot. He's got all these stories about these incredible things that God does through his life because he's always believing all things, hoping all things, bearing all things because the love never fails. And that man is driven by the love of Christ in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I love to be around Brian McDaniel. He's he comes here occasionally, and it's like, tell me a story. Tell me. He's like, oh, hey, you'll never believe this, but let's pray first. You know, like, that's how he is. It's not like he doesn't have trials or heartaches or hardships. He's had plenty of heartaches and hardships. I don't, want to, I don't want your words to fail when you stand before the throne of Christ. I don't want your words to fall on the ground before the throne of God. Because too many of them are already going to fall on the throne, before the throne of mine and yours, Right? We know that already. So we're not going to have the, our words are not going to reflect perfection. But the more they can reflect Christ and his glory, the better for us on our journey here and transdimensional for when we stand before the throne of God. Because Jesus said, not only will we give an account for every idle word you speak, but even the thoughts and the intents of our heart and why we spoke them. So that's why I've tried to be way less critical of things that, it's really not my jurisdiction. It's focus on what God is calling me to do and let him worry about my neighbor. Love my neighbor, serve my neighbor, try and bless my neighbor. We can catch our words and just let what we speak reflect our confidence in the person, the work, and the promises of Jesus Christ for time and eternity. It doesn't mean we don't have a bad day. It doesn't mean we don't have the emotions of being sorrowful and heartache and grief. Those things are real. But just make sure you're framing it in the promises of God. Because all things do work together for good to those who love God. So those things, you frame it. And you give it to the Lord. And then you don't have to blame anybody. And you don't have to be bitter against anybody. You don't have to be contentious with anybody when there's no, no, nothing more to contend over. You just, you just keep going forward. Our words. For in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. And even a fool is kind of wise when they hold their peace. So it's a good reminder. Because Samuel, when he did his circuit, he'd show up and people come to him and he'd have words of wisdom. I've been thinking about this. Again, in my phone or in my notes, I, I thought, because I quote Steve Thorne a lot, who used to go to this church. And, and I learned a few things from Steve Thorne. There are macro life view things from a man that's extremely successful in life with finances particularly. But then I think about, I, I, was, I recently wrote them down before I would forget them because I have them. And I thought, I used to say I learned three great things from Pastor Chuck at Calvary Costa Mesa. And I could say it, and I hadn't said it for so long that I brought up recently, I was like, what are those three things I learned? But I also had three negatives I learned from Calvary Costa Mesa, which I forgot, which is good because I don't want to remember them. 
But the three positive ones, I remembered. And I put them in my phone by his name. And I remember some other things I learned from Pastor Chuck they didn't really think about. But always teach the word of God contextually. When you err, err in grace. And time has a way of playing things out. Those are three great lessons I learned under Pastor Chuck serving with the truly the great Pastor Chuck for five years at Calvary Costa Mesa. See, let your words be something that people look to and say, yeah, I can, I can, I can go with that. So the Lord has, he's establishing us through his son, Jesus Christ, in his call in our life. He is with us in all things we face, and he's going to establish our words, and he wants us to not have our words fall to the ground, but our words have credibility with all the people we're working with and what we're reflecting from our heart when we speak and how we interact with people. And a closing thought in all this is that it says that the Lord um, had not only established him, but established him as a prophet. That was his calling. He's called to be a prophet. But he was a judge, too. I do believe there is a greater purpose for every person's life. Now, you can't know that until you give your life to Christ. But there's a very unique purpose. Recently, my wife were at this, and I were at this uh, antiquity store of high-end antiquities. And we're just looking at stuff. And I'm looking at these beautiful vases from a century and a half ago. France, 1901, you know, like that kind of stuff. Europe, 1800s. You know, the kind of vases that are very expensive. And I'm looking at the artwork and everything, and it's just so unique. Like the one flower one that was like this, and then all the, and there's just such different styles from different eras, and they're beautiful. And these are like some like $25,000 and stuff. And I'm just, I'm looking like, this is history. These are unique works of art that artists did 150 years ago, and they're beautiful. Your call. Your purpose, Samuel's established as a prophet, your call, your purpose is way more beautiful than those vases from two centuries ago. And it's way more unique. Because my wife will testify, those vases that we're looking at, none of them are alike. And that's what makes them so beautiful. And there in Ephesians, we're told that we're not saved by works, but we're his workmanship. We are his workmanship. His work of art. It's like a unique jar on the potter's wheel, a unique painting with the painter's brush. You and the call of God on your life is unique and no one else can fulfill it or be it. There would be other prophets, but they're not the prophet Samuel. There are other judges, but they're not the judge Samuel. We want to seek after and fully embrace God establishing us in who we really are meant to be and our destiny and purpose in life. And many of you are in that and on that right now. But make sure you are. And I shared on Tuesday night, and I close with this thought. I read a book by Pete Carroll, the famous football coach, that he wrote when he was at USC, before he went to Seattle Seahawks. And in that book, talking about football and all this, like the kind of book you read on a plane back in the day. And I, when I read that book, it's a pretty easy read. I found it interesting from a coaching perspective. But the last thing he says is that you should be able to summarize your whole mission. So his whole mission purpose as a head coach of USC football, and he was certainly done the same with Seattle Seahawks in the NFL. Your whole mission purpose, now I said Tuesday night it was 20 words. It was actually 25 words. He said that you should be able to summarize your mission, your whole purpose in life, in your, what your profession is, like your, your purpose, in 25 words or less. 
And so some of us start with like a lot of words, like some of us can consolidate things quickly. Like you can say things in 25 words. Maybe you need to add from 15. Maybe you're good with 15. Some of you maybe write out 100 words. But I'll say what I said Tuesday night again to us here on Saturday night. The more that you can shape that clear focus of who you are, what are you doing, why are you doing it, and how are you going to do it? You'll have clarity and simplicity in your life with Jesus Christ at the highest level. Who you are to know your place in the kingdom of God and on planet Earth in 2022. What are you doing? Because Jesus has you alive to do it. And why, why are you doing it? So what are you doing is the what and the why is because it's for the glory. What do you do? Whatever you do, do it unto the Lord. Hardly as unto the Lord, not unto men. To do it as unto the Lord. And how are you going to do it? How is God going to bring this to pass? Are you waiting on the Lord or are you supposed to go through that open door? Are you moving like Paul in the book of Acts 16? Nope, nope, dream, go. Like, how is it going to happen? And as we seek the Lord, as we knock, it will be shown to us. It will be open to us. As we ask, it will be given to us because Jesus said to do so. So I encourage us, What's your purpose on planet Earth in Jesus' name? As best you know it tonight. And if you don't know, go buy a notebook at Target and start writing some things down and thinking about it. And especially if you're older at 60, you better figure out what it is because you've got limited time to finish it up. To really know. Samuel was established by the Lord. And your purpose, every believer in Jesus' name on planet Earth right now, and every previous generation, and the ones that come after us, there's a purpose. And we want to get after it, and we want to let God fully establish it in our life, that he's with us, that our words do reflect those promises and, and carry those promises, and that all the world can see the call of God on our life in Jesus' name.